Let me tell you about one of the first times I remember getting really frustrated with my husband came not long after our wedding. We had been given by some of our wedding guests um, a number of board games. No doubt it was the idea that was playing these games would like stimulate fun and positive connection between us that would help solidify, deepen our new union. Whoever thought this clearly had never played the game Monopoly. Now, I was at a distinct disadvantage when we opened up the Parker Brothers game because I'd never played it growing up, okay? I didn't really know what we were doing here. And Jason had played it as a kid, and so he understood how it worked, what the goals are, um, and before long, he was raking in the dough, taking clear advantage of his understanding of the game while I was still trying to figure out the rules. He secured all the best properties, as he was supposed to do. His fortune grew and grew while I was quickly driven into bankruptcy. So Jason won fair and square, exactly as the game wanted him to, and I got to admit, it made me pretty cranky. (laughs) I was mad. If the hope by our friends who gave us the game was that game night would like turn into a romantic encounter, yeah, that majorly backfired. It took me several days to get over my hurt of having been so royally screwed, and I'm not sure we ever pulled that game out of the closet again, no. (laughs) So, an article in the New York Times Magazine this week started with this little anecdote. A couple of years before he was convicted of securities fraud, Martin Shkreli was the chief executive of a pharmaceutical company that acquired the rights to Daraprim, a life-saving anti-parasitic drug. Previously, the drug had cost $13.50 a pill. But in Shkreli's hands, the price quickly increased by a factor of 56 to $750 a pill. At a healthcare conference, Shkreli told the audience he should have raised the price even higher. No one wants to say it. No one's proud of it, he explained. But this is a capitalist society a capitalist system, and capitalist rules. I bet Martin Shkreli was really good at Monopoly. It's a capitalist society, right? That's a mantra many of us have heard in some fashion throughout our life. I presume for most of us, some version of capitalism is all we've ever known. If we've studied economics, We've worked in finance, maybe we're in corporate management, we might have a deep understanding of how market economies function, more than just a game of Monopoly would tell you, right? But many of us don't. We simply accept capitalism in some uh, some sorts of a given, and with that, perhaps we accept like a cynical reality that in a capitalist world, some people will just, you know, make a killing because they can Well, we're coming towards the end of our series on Smashing Idols, a series in which I've been positing that the human constructs that shape our thinking and cause us to prioritize some points of view over others, that these are actually our own contemporary versions of what our ancient ancestors dealt with in the form of idols. We invest ourselves in them. We're shaped by them. Our view of reality is distorted. And that even distorts our view of God. Well, today, for the last idol we're considering, we're turning the lens toward the framework of capitalism. 
considering together how or why that might function as an idol? And if so, what we might do about it. Now, I will say, while I've been doing a fair amount of research on the topic, I want to clearly acknowledge I am no expert when it comes to economic policy. I'm not an economist. I'm not a political theorist, a financial planner. I'm just a pastor. So my questions aren't primarily about, like, what are the best views on how markets should work, or what are all the best public policies or political systems we should be pushing for. I'm interested in what is the effect of living in a capitalist society on the pursuit of faith? How does it impact our understanding of the divine? And what might we do if we find those things don't align? For those of us who, like me, aren't economic or government experts, it might be helpful to review like, what this term capitalism even means. Right? Essentially, capitalism, in its most simple description, and if you want to fill in the blanks, we'll start here, is an economic system that allows private individuals and companies to make most of the economic decisions and own most of the property, while the government plays a secondary role. Okay? Private individuals and companies make most of the decisions. Government plays a secondary role. These individuals and companies control the means of production for goods to be produced and sold for profit. Capitalism assumes a free market economy in which goods and services are distributed according to the laws of supply and demand. So when something's produced, it's a person who owns the machine or the capital rather than the worker who works it who gets control of the profit. In theory, the owner, or you could call them the capitalist, has to pay a fair wage, right? Allow the worker to work under fair conditions. Or the worker could choose to just go work somewhere else for another employer, right, who will pay him or her better or treat him or her better. That's how the labor market's supposed to work, a supply and demand balance in labor. In the same way, the owner has the right to sell the product for whatever people are willing to pay for it, even $750 a pill. And if the capitalist can sell it for more than he or she spent to make it, he or she can make quite a profit. Once again, supply and demand are key. Fewer there are of something, higher the demand, often the more that can be charged. So proponents of capitalism often like to talk about capitalism in terms of freedom, right? That's a word you hear a lot when people defend capitalism. It gives us a lot of freedom. In recent decades, they might point to economists like Milton Friedman, who argued that economic freedom was needed for political freedom. Friedman believed the government should intervene as little as possible in the economy, letting the free market determine how money is best exchanged. And the idea is with this freedom, some people will be motivated to work really hard because they can really prosper. And as they do, the economy grows faster and everyone benefits. A rising tide lifts all boats is a saying that some with this view would celebrate. Okay? Now, often folks who celebrate this freedom of capitalism do so by contrasting it with some form of what they call socialism. Now, socialism is a very broad umbrella term that actually can look like a lot of different models. I'm not going to get into them. But usually when a free market capitalist uses socialism to contrast it with capitalism, what they have in mind is a very extreme version, 
of socialism, right? Perhaps even the very far end, which we would call communism, right? In which a totalitarian government holds tight control over how everything's produced. And they say, look at their lack of freedom. What motivation would you even have to work hard if you can't enjoy the spoils of your labor? That's the capitalist's argument. But this freedom that capitalists seem to celebrate, what kind of a freedom is it? And for whom? Maybe they're the freedoms that you and I might enjoy. Freedom to purchase things we find valuable. Freedom to pursue an education. Discern a career that suits us and provides for us and our families. Freedom to own a home we can live in, pass down to our children. Freedom to invest a bit of our extra money in entities we believe in. Freedom to start our own companies. Who knows? Perhaps that company might be the next multi-billion dollar corporation bringing value into the world. There is a lot of this kind of freedom that I think is really positive, right? There's nothing there I would, I would take issue with that harkens back to the democratic ideal of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, right? But for capitalism, in its most raw free market form to function, I don't think these freedoms I just referenced are actually the primary motivators. At best, they're like positive side effects. The ultimate goal of capitalism is to enrich the capitalist. Let's be real. I'm going to say it again. The ultimate goal of capitalism is to enrich the capitalist, to provide maximum freedom in the market for the person who's fortunate enough, smart enough, perhaps ruthless enough, to grow their capital investment, to make their capital turn a financial profit, whatever the effect it has on others. The New York Times article I referenced at the beginning with a little anecdote is by Princeton sociology professor Matthew Desmond, and it describes the origins of American capitalism historically and how many of the business practices we've seen developed here in the United States, the practices that are the daily cogs and wheels in our American capitalist machine, how they were actually developed first and foremost on the southern plantation, where the product being mass-produced was cotton, and the primary form of capital was the ownership of human beings. All right? This is not pretty. No doubt, if you were a plantation landowner, you had the freedom to do remarkably well for yourself. Right before the Civil War, the Mississippi Valley was home to more millionaires per capita than anywhere else in the United States. But at what cost? What freedom was there for the native populations who saw millions of acres of their land expropriated by the US government and sold on the cheap to the white settlers and land speculators? What freedom was there for the land itself? that within a generation saw all of its rich resources utterly depleted? What freedom was there truly for the poor white day laborer whose work was insecure, whose wages were depressed, whose kids also needed to work in order for the meager family provision, but whose only comfort 
and sense of freedom came from the small consolation that at least they weren't in bondage. And of course, most crucially, what freedom was there for the enslaved laborers themselves whose bodies were brutalized while their value, economic value, and the economic value of their children were cataloged on balance sheets and traded freely on an open market, even using human lives as collateral to secure our nation's first mortgage, mortgages that would permit wealthy capitalists to then purchase more human lives. Desmond described this original version of capitalism in this brutal way, and I have the quote up if you want to read along. The cotton plantation was America's first big business, and the nation's first corporate big brother was the overseer. And behind every cold calculation, every rational fine-tuning of the system, violence lurked. Plantation owners used a combination of incentives and punishments to squeeze as much as possible out of enslaved workers. The violence was neither arbitrary nor gratuitous. It was rational, capitalistic, all part of the plantation's design. Each individual having a stated number of pounds of cotton to pick, a formerly enslaved worker, Henry Watson, wrote in 1848, the deficit of which was made up by as many lashes being applied to the poor slave's back. The freedom that American capitalism has long celebrated has always come at a horrific cost. The core freedom that capitalism, particularly the American brand, left to its own devices, supports, is really the freedom to exploit. It is the freedom to exploit, the freedom to oppress, the freedom to enrich yourself, whatever the consequences are on anyone else. This distorted freedom for those with the most capital has evolved, no doubt, since the era of the plantation. But the fundamental problem persists. Today, income inequality in the United States is at mind-bending levels. The richest 1% of, of Americans own 40% of the country's wealth, while 40% of the American population can't afford a $400 emergency expense. Medical expenses cost people their homes, send people into bankruptcy, jobs are shipped overseas to places with less worker protection. Meanwhile, immigrants are lured across our border by multinational corporations who want to exploit their precarious legal position of these workers so that they can keep the wages low, but they have no interest in protecting them when ICE comes calling. Those who are winning the monopoly game are happy to invest their winnings into political contributions that ensure that those in government work with them rather than against them so that together the political class and the financial class can shape the rules of the game that favor more and more power in the hands of fewer and fewer people. This is the sick freedom of capitalism today. In the New Testament, there's a story of Jesus encountering a person of wealth in his day. And Mark tells the story this way. 
Now, as Jesus was starting out on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Teacher, I've wholeheartedly obeyed all of these laws since my youth. As Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him and said, You lack one thing. Go. Sell whatever you have. Give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad and went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Here in this story, I believe Jesus is calling out the fallacy of freedom that comes in any economic system where the accumulation of wealth is the heart of the matter. This ruler may genuinely desire connection with the divine. He may desire to wholeheartedly honor God, obeying every commandment as he says. He wants eternal life. But as Jesus highlights in his challenge to him, this desire has always been on this man's terms. As he practiced the commandments, he maintained his freedom to accumulate and possess to pursue security for himself and his family, but that security has come at a cost because this freedom is a false freedom. This man's not free to embrace a different economic vision, one that's closer to the heart of the divine. He's not truly free to join this Jesus who looks to him with love and compassion, the cost is too high. He is captive to his own success. His heart has been captured by this wealth. He does not feel the freedom to do what Jesus is asking him to do. And so he walks away sad and sorrowful. Perhaps this conflict in this man is what Jesus was referring to when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. An idol, as it's classically understood, is a false god something we invest our worship in that keeps us from connecting with a truer, deeper, ultimate reality. In this story, this man is conflicted. He can't serve two masters. He has to walk away from this invitation to eternal union with the God of all creation, the God who has more than enough abundance, wants to share it with God's children generously. He has to leave that so he can maintain control over his little empire. This man walks away because he's captive to an idol. An idol that I believe is still very much with us and is at the heart of what we've come to know as capitalism. And friends, this idol doesn't just impact the wealthiest among us 
It's not just for those secular Wall Street fat cats who have no ethical bones in their bodies. The idol whispers to our brilliant idealists at our best universities who enter their Ivy League halls with the hopes of changing the world, but five years later find themselves using those brilliant minds to speculate with other people's money rather than discovering the cure to cancer. The idol encourages young tech entrepreneurs to pitch disruptive ideas that will enrich themselves and their investors without thinking too deeply about the implications of their disruptions. Just because you, should, you can collect and sell a user's data doesn't mean you should. And grievously, the idol certainly impacts our churches as they too bow to the consumerism of a capitalist society, whether that means setting up a Starbucks in the lobby of your church or preaching a gospel that promises health and wealth from God if you simply click the Donate Now button, or what I think is really most problematic, when the church is unable to speak prophetically because it has to serve the idol of the bottom line. In a consumer world, if you speak truth to power, power can always take the check to the church down the street, right? In recent years, I've come to know many respected pastors, scholars, authors who have privately told me, or people I am close to, that their views on LGBTQ inclusion have changed. They have evolved. They personally can no longer justify Exclusion from the church for LGBTQ persons. But the financial cost to these Christian leaders of their little church empires, the financial cost that they have built, that is just too high. And so these leaders can never say it out loud. And sadly, they, like the young ruler in the story, have to just walk away from Jesus' invitation to sell it all and join what he's doing. So what is this alternative economic vision that Jesus' upside-down kingdom, or like I talked about a couple weeks ago, you could call it the kingdom of God, would have people embrace? What's the view regarding how our resources are distributed that he and the Jewish tradition he emerges from would teach? If Jesus might have identified an idol at the heart of the capitalist tradition, what would he call people to instead, Right? That's a big question I have to name. Truthfully, economics are a major theme throughout the scriptures with more passages than we could deeply explore here today. But I think it's worth taking a bit of time to look at some of the highlights because I do think they give us a broader context for what Jesus was naming when he was calling that rich man to sell his possessions and give them away. And that broader context might give us a sense of what a less idolatrous economy could look like. So, let's take a look. In the Hebrew Bible, we have a couple of themes to look to. There's certainly a tradition, you can't say there's not, in some places of seeing economic flourishing as a sign of God's favor. Okay? Particularly if we look to like the early stories of people like the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who in their agrarian society, they see their flocks and their lands prosper, and they understand that prosperity to be a blessing from God. 
But perhaps even more consistently than seeing that theme, as the scriptures progress, we see God's heart for those who are oppressed by the consolidation of wealth and political power that happens as social systems develop. So when the Hebrew people are crying out to God as slaves in Egypt, God's heart is moved to bring them liberation. And then as that God releases the captives and gives them a code of their own to live by, this divine includes a priority for the poor and the powerless. Here's just one of many examples from the laws that were given to Moses. You see in Deuteronomy, you must not oppress a lowly and poor servant, whether one from among your fellow Israelites or from the resident foreigners who are living in your land and villages. You must pay his wage that very day before the sun sets, for he is poor and his life depends on it. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Whenever you reap your harvest in your field and leave some unraked grain there, you must not return to get it. It should go to the resident foreigner orphan and widow, so that the Lord your God might bless all the work you do. Remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt, therefore I'm commanding you to do all this. So here we see God inviting his followers to care for one another, to love their neighbors as much as themselves, to make the poor a priority. Now indeed, God recognizes some will be landowners, some will be day laborers, Some will not have fortune because they lost their husband. They don't have a means to provide for themselves. Okay, God's not saying everyone's going to be the same. But this God does not want those who are in the position of power to exploit those who work for them. The workers should be paid on time for their work. God also wants them who have money, those who have money, more to care for those who have less. So God instructs them. Leave some of your harvest for the immigrants, the orphans, the widows, all of those who are at a disadvantage. You have a little extra. You don't need it. It's okay. Elsewhere, God even makes provisions for the release of debt through the institution of the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all the debts are forgiven. There's like a massive redistribution of property and land so that generations of inequality don't entrench and persist. These themes continue throughout the Hebrew Bible. The prophets are often speaking out when they see the powerful in their day, ignoring these guidelines. And then we come to the Gospels and the life of Jesus. Now, the world Jesus came into was also one of great economic inequality. Remember, at this time, Israel was under Roman occupation. And in that setup, there were essentially two classes, the very rich and the very poor. The very rich was a small amount of people, no more than like 5% of the population. And it included Roman bureaucrats, wealthy priests, a handful of landowners, and the tax collectors. The rich young ruler we met in Mark 10 was part of this small class. But the rest of the people in Israel were basically poor, many destitute. Though most of these poor were working poor, the majority of peasants were subsistence farmers, so they paid very heavy taxes to Rome, and they were also taxed by the priests. So they also paid religious taxes to the priests. Estimates are likely 40% of their harvest they paid in taxes. Okay? 
And, and it's not, I mean, it's basically that's, they have an amount to, to hit that's an estimate of 40%, but, but if they have a bad crop yield, they're not going to be able to pay the tax. They don't just get, it doesn't just, you know, go down because they have less to give out of, right? And so they often got into this vicious cycle, right? The, the crop yield is bad, and so the poor have to borrow from the wealthy to pay the taxes, but then as they default on their loans, they're often forced to sell themselves or their children into slavery. That's the economic state Jesus walks into. In this context, it's notable, isn't it? How the divine chooses to be revealed. God doesn't choose to be born as a wealthy landowner or a priest living high off of the religious taxes. Jesus comes born to poor peasants, lives the life of a peasant, identifies himself as one who has come to bring freedom and liberation to those in poverty. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has this big like coming out moment where he announces who he truly is, what he's come to do as he goes to the front of the synagogue and opens up the, the scroll and reads these words from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is another way of talking about the jubilee, the practice that had long since been abandoned. But here Jesus is announcing his identity is one of restoring justice to the vulnerable who've been taken advantage of, of wiping debts clean, of turning the economy upside down. He is saying, that is what I am here for. And Jesus' identity with the poor continues throughout his ministry. As he preaches, blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. In the prayer, he teaches his followers to pray that we've probably prayed many times in our lives. The Lord's Prayer. He centers a prayer for daily bread, right? Which really means that as well as a release from debts, a term that has much more of an economic implication than a moral one. He famously chastises the merchants and money changers who've set up shop in the Jewish temple, even taking a direct action as he overturns their tables and chases them out of the temple courts for turning God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. And then, of course, towards the end of his life, Jesus names that his identification with the poor goes so deep that he recognizes support for them to be equivalent with support for himself. Describing a moment of final reckoning, Jesus says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? We're thirsty and give you something to drink. When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
clearly Jesus cared about and identified with the poor. And he expected his followers to do the same. Jesus was calling them into an alternative kingdom, kingdom, an economy that wasn't held up by systems of inequality, but that invited cooperation and communal care. Amen? An economy not held up by systems of inequality, but that invited cooperation and communal care. And the earliest Jesus followers got that. Because after his death, resurrection, and the sending of the Spirit, they felt called to live that out in really practical ways. That's what we see embodied in the earliest version of the church. Acts 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Oh, friends, I, I, I don't care what anyone's told you in the past. I just can't get there. Jesus is not a capitalist. Right? That is, it's not true. Jesus is not a capitalist. No. Jesus clearly has a very different economic vision. It's a vision that understands that there may be difference in terms of economic station. But when that's the case, it expects cooperative community care in the midst of that reality. It's a vision that doesn't hold personal freedom over freedom of your neighbor. It's a vision that celebrates justice and not oppression and expects that those who have more should attend to and share with those who have less. Seeing them not as unworthy of concern, but as the revealers of Jesus himself, God's own self. So if we believe that this economic vision is the vision that we as Jesus followers are called to embody, how do we even begin to live into that vision in the midst of a capitalist economy that doesn't share that core calling? This is the real rub, right? This is the challenge. It's a big question, admittedly one that I can't answer exhaustively this morning. But I'm going to end with a few suggestions that might help us take kind of the first steps in a direction of wrestling this through. So here are my thoughts. First, I think we need to invite the work of the Holy Spirit to give us greater insight about the ways that our investment in this capitalist economy keep us from more freely participating in Jesus' economic vision? What are the ways we ask the Spirit to show us the ways our investment in this capitalist economy keep us from more freely participating in Jesus' economic vision? I don't think any of us are likely to be CEOs of multinational corporations. 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't ways that parts of our own hearts haven't been given over to that false promise of freedom that capitalism offers. Where do we find ourselves controlled by this supposed freedom? Feeling the need to focus on storing up these earthly treasures rather than feeling truly free to be open-handed with what we've been given. Now, I'm not saying I've solved this for myself. I'm wrestling. And hear me, I think there's a lot of complexity here. I'm not saying no one should own private property or you shouldn't have a 401k. I think there's a biblical case, a, a strong case for scripture and tradition and wisdom to make for stewarding our resources well, to making wise choices with them. Jesus talked about that too. And Jesus himself and those who traveled with him, how did they live? They lived itinerantly because they had benefactors who had means and they stewarded those means well and they shared them with Jesus and his followers as needed. So the question isn't like, is it bad to have a piece of property? I don't think that's quite the right question. The question is, to what extent do our investments in our economic states define our identities and our motives rather than providing a means for us to live openly, generously, with freedom to respond to the Spirit's prompting to share? Does that make sense? I'm going to just say it again because I think it's important. I think the question is, to what extent do our investments in our economic states define our identities and motives, rather than simply being the means to an end, a means for us to live openly, generously, with freedom, to respond to the Spirit's prompting to share? I believe all of us should be inviting the Spirit's activity into our financial choices, seeking spiritual wisdom, as we make these choices, not because there's necessarily always one clear right or wrong answer, should you do this thing or this thing, it's not always clear. But I think as we invite the Spirit in, we're recognizing, we're naming as a, as a spiritual practice, an act of worship, I need help in keeping my priorities clear and my heart aligned, oh God, with your heart and the way I handle what you've given me, right? I think that's something we have to kind of commit ourselves to. So that's number one, inviting the work of the Spirit. Number two, I would invite us to consider how our places of relative power and privilege present opportunities to work and advocate for greater freedom for everyone. Friends, in theory, at least, we still live in a representative democracy, something that Jesus' followers didn't. There's an argument to be made, though, that capitalism and democracy don't actually go hand in hand, that they are diametrically opposed. A core democratic ideal is that every person has, every citizen has a vote, every person has a voice. Right? Every politician should be subject to the constituents who elect them. But the more the levers of government are controlled by corporate interests so that the very agencies that have been developed to protect people from the excesses of capitalism are gutted from the inside, making them ineffective, the more that the large corporations are able to shape policies rather than the general populations who are affected by them, by us, Right? 
the more politicians will choose a career path that will take them from Congress to a high-paying lobbying firm. The more that happens, the less our individual votes matter. I believe what we need is more democracy and less capitalism. I don't know what that means and how we do it, but I think at the heart, that is what we're saying. More democracy, less capitalism. So we ask ourselves, how can we organize? How can we give? How can we speak out? How can we participate in our system in a meaningful way, calling out our, calling our supposedly democratic system to its stated values of liberty and justice for all? One gift of the last few years, I think, is how much the charade has been exposed. People are starting to rise up to recognize this is not the way it's supposed to be. I'm losing my democracy to my capitalism. I'm not okay with that. Activists of all stripes are uniting to say, no, we won't let you take our democracy from us without a fight. There are roles all of us can play in that work, so consider what places of relative power and privilege, even if it's just you are a citizen of the United States and you have a vote and a voice in theory, don't let it be taken from you. How can we use that to advocate for greater freedom for all? And then my third, because you all might be feeling it right now, and I, I understand, but I think our third call is to resist cynical fatalism and invite Jesus to open our imaginations in a hopeful way towards our participation of the thing God is doing, redeeming all things, including our idolatrous systems. After the rich young ruler walked away, Jesus turned to his followers saying, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at these words. But again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to one another, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and replied, this is impossible for mere humans, but not for God. All things are possible for God. It is hard to turn from self-interest to cooperative life. It is hard for those whose hearts are captive to an idol to shed that captivity and thread the needle. It is understandable why we, like Jesus' disciples, might conclude, you know what, it is not possible. We have reasons to be cynical and fatalistic. But Jesus is inviting us to hope and believe in a world we've not yet seen a world that is impossible for mere humans to embody but is not impossible for God. I refuse to resign myself to the only options being a cruel capitalism or a totalitarian socialism. My faith doesn't allow me to accept that. This is the gift we as Jesus followers have to give in this cynical moment we find ourselves in. We can't cave to despair. We have to say, yes, the system is broken. Things are not as they should be. The status quo is not to be tolerated. It's unacceptable because it offends the heart at the center of the universe. And the good news is we follow the one who believes we can do better. We partner with Jesus who reveals a different way to live and a different dream of what real freedom looks like. So may this be the mission we participate in for as long as we have breath to do it.
And may the community we embody in this moment here at Haven and in every community we participate in around us, may they testify in their own ways that this idol is not all-powerful. Amen? Just as the early church modeled an alternative reality, may we live into that prophetic call in our time, and may we find Jesus in our midst as we do. And may the good news that God hears the cries of the poor and moves to bring liberation and true freedom for all, may that good news bring hope to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Amen.